Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about First Baptist Church of Silva, please visit firstbaptistsilva.com. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I present Hell, a tragedy in four acts. Act one. Two men appear on the scene, a rich man and a poor man. The rich man is, in fact, rich. Jesus points out the details. The rich man is dressed in purple. It's not an accident. It means that he is a person of means. He's important, either a member of the royal family or a high-ranking official. The rich man feasts sumptuously each day. Not just occasionally, each and every day. Some renderings of the same story say that the rich man lived in luxury, great luxury. Now this, this rich man, he had a gate, a fence outside of his home, probably for privacy, but mostly for security, you know, to keep others out. The poor man in this story strikes a pitiful figure. Now, what you need to know is outside the homes of the wealthy at this day and age, there was often a bench. The owner would place a bench outside so that a beggar could come and wait there for assistance, especially when there was a party. The scraps that fell from the wealthy's feast could provide a good meal to those beggars, so they would wait there outside in orderly fashion to receive what had fallen from their tables. It would certainly make a dent in their hunger and thirst. But in this Jesus story, even though the rich man has a feast every day, he ignores the poor beggar on the bench outside his gates. Jesus also tells us that this poor beggar is disease-ridden, covered in sores. If only I could get the scraps, the beggar thinks. It's not a false hope. At this time, guests at a feast would use bread to clean up their greasy hands, and they'd drop the bread beneath the table that they reclined at, dogs, would then come and eat up the scraps from the table. But the poor man receives no scraps. The only attention he gets is from the scavenging dogs that come and lick his sores in a gruesome and certainly non-sentimental image. The rich man has nothing to do with the poor man. The gate and the rich man's wealth make certain of that. There's no interaction between them. It's not that the rich man doesn't care about the poor man. The rich man doesn't see the poor man. The rich man receives no name in Jesus' story, which is in no way unusual. In all of Jesus' parables, no one receives a name. 
except for the poor man in our story. He gets the name Lazarus. Lazarus means God helps, which is a good thing because no one else does. Lazarus's existence is a living hell. And the rich man is living the dream. Act two. Lazarus dies. And he's carried away to be with angels at a feast. He's at a feast with Abraham. Y'all remember Abraham from Genesis. He's Father Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people, God's chosen people, and presumably he's in heaven. A rich man also dies and is buried, and when he wakes up, he sees that the tables have turned. Looking up from his newfound destination, the rich man sees Abraham with Lazarus there at his side, a long, long way away. The rich man now realizes that he is in the torments of hell while Lazarus is in paradise. Wait a second. How did this happen? And with that, the curtain closes on Act 2. Let's take a brief intermission, shall we? Let's take a break from our four-act tragedy and talk a little bit about hell. Reminds me of the story that I've shared with you about my father in the 1960s, a student at Mars Hill College. He and a buddy of his were returning home to the farm that he grew up in, in Yancey County, and they spotted a tent. It was a tent revival. So he pulled over, and they went inside the tent. Now, my father began to wonder about the wisdom of this when the preacher stopped preaching, stared at them in the back of the tent and said, brothers and sisters, the devil has just entered the tent. At this point, my father would say that he realized he had miscalculated. Looking down, he and his friends were wearing shorts. Their legs were naked. Now, most of us, of course, would have left the tent revival at that moment, but not my father and his friend. No, they sat down listening to the preacher. But they realized that it was time for them to go when they passed the offering plate. And my father put in a meager offering, and at the end of the row, the usher took the money out of the offering plate and handed it back to my father. So when they gave his offering back to him, my father decided it best to leave the tent revival and return to hell where apparently he had come from. <laughs> In the New Testament, Hades, or hell, was the place of the dead. And the way in which Jesus talks about it, it's not a place anyone would want to, to go to or to be sent. 
Now, speaking of Jesus, Jesus refers to hell only a handful of times. I must add, far less than many hellfire and brimstone pastors. But his mentions of hell are worthy of our attention. One of the first places that we see Jesus referencing hell is in the Sermon on the Mount, where he doles out some judgment to those who think they've got it all figured out, especially those who treat others poorly. You may recall where Jesus says, hey, if if you insult a brother, if you call them a fool, he says, you will be liable to the hell of fire. That's smarts. But not as much, of course, as the premier example of Jesus referencing hell, which happens at the end of Matthew's gospel. You know the story about the one who divides the sheep from the goats, the left and the right. And after welcoming those on the right into the glories of paradise, he then turns to those at his left. He says, you that are accursed... Depart from me into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why, we wonder. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Two other references where Jesus talks about hell. The other is with those Pharisees, those religious authorities. In fact, it's fascinating to recall that Jesus saves much of his wrath not for those who culturally may be different than you or I know. It was for the religious authority who thought they had it all figured out. No, he says to them, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, you religious authorities, hypocrites, you snakes, you brood of vipers. Wow. How can you escape being sentenced to hell? And the last passage that Jesus talks about hell is this one. With the rich man and with Lazarus. Are you seeing a pattern emerge here? Now, back to our four-act tragedy. Act three. We find both of the men dead in this act. Lazarus, the poor beggar, is now in heaven. The rich man is in torment in hell. The rich man spots Lazarus with Father Abraham and calls out for mercy, saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in agony in these flames. (laughs) Well, look at this. The rich man knows who Lazarus is after all, and even in hell... The rich man wants to order Lazarus around like a servant. Clarence Jordan, some of you all know, great mind, Baptist preacher in the 20th century Georgia. He took the Bible, the great Bible scholar that he was, he took the gospel and he located it in the deep south so that everything has a very southern quality to it. 
I love it. In this story, Clarence Jordan has Father Abraham saying in this moment, Lazarus ain't going to run no more your errands, rich man. No, he is not. It's really quite, quite straightforward, Abraham says. Remember that during your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus in the manner of all evil things, but now... He's comforted here, and you are in agony. Well, the rich man is not used to hearing no for an answer, so he presses his case. Well, if I can't be saved, Father Abraham, then please warn my five brothers so that they don't end up here. Turns out Abraham has an answer for that as well. Well, they have the scriptures. They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them panicking now the the rich man says but if someone returns from the dead my brothers will repent but Abraham is not moved they don't listen to Moses and the prophets the scripture and the teachings and they won't be convinced by anything even and especially if someone rises from the dead and the curtain falls Jesus' story is over. But that's not the end of our tragedy. Act four. Act four begins with a question. How will you respond to the first three acts? Because How you react will determine who experiences hell in this world and in the next. Consider, shall we, the facts. You and I are alive today, and our actions and our decisions matter. Another fact. You and I will die one day. Some of us sooner rather than later. You will be judged. I will be judged. We will be judged. And we cannot say that we were not warned. It wasn't an accident that our youth read a passage from the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, I might add, Deuteronomy. There are over 20 explicit commands to care for the poor in the Hebrew scriptures. We cannot say that we were not warned. Jesus makes it abundantly clear And then throughout the New Testament, we see over and over again about God's concern and care for the poor. Consider what James says. He writes, what good is it, y'all? If you say you have faith but do not have works, can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs What is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. I 
I don't know about y'all, but Act 4 is hard to sift through. I'm, I'm ready to get up and to leave this tragedy. Because the truth is, we have a lot in common with Jesus' audience here. Jesus' audience were the Pharisees, and they had a gospel of wealth. Thinking that they had done well and earned God's favor because of their physical blessing. A gospel of wealth. Well, I got news for them and for us. This is not good news for us. Wealth means comfort and privilege. It means power and status. It means having what you want and getting what you desire. It's true, wealth is relative. And we like to convince ourselves that we're middle class and not really wealthy, y'all. We are far more comfortable and privileged than our neighbors in our region, in our country, and certainly our world. Our fences are tall. Our security systems are impenetrable. Like the authorities did in Atlanta in 1996 on the eve of the Olympics, who gave one-way tickets to the poor and homeless in downtown Atlanta to get them out of town and off their front stoops, we are much more inclined to overlook the poor than we are to help them. The rich man tries to claim ignorance. Ignorance that he didn't know that he had done anything wrong. But the truth is, Moses and the prophets were not enough to convince him that he should live differently. It wasn't enough for the rich man. And he suspects that it won't be enough for his brothers. Aha! The brothers, I bet you overlooked them in Act 2 and 3. The brothers are the ones who are still alive. They can still change their ways. But a stronger warning besides the scripture is needed, the rich man believes. For just as they thought they were safe by being children of Abraham, we too, I believe, think that we are safe because we've said yes to Jesus. But what they didn't get back in Jesus' age was that to be a people of the law meant obedience to the law and the law demanded care for those less fortunate. And likewise, we don't get that being a follower of Jesus means more than just saying that you believe in him. Y'all, you know, we're the brothers. We are the five brothers who make an appearance in Act 3. We're the ones who are still living and whose decisions in life matter. And it's still not clear whether we'll be convinced by the scriptures or someone being raised from the dead for us to change our ways. It's not too late, though. The curtain on Act 4 has not come down. And what is needed is repentance. 
literally stopping what we're doing, what we've been doing, what our rhythms and patterns in life have been around, and what we've done, to repent, stop, and to stop ignoring the beggars on our doorsteps. To repent and to stop overlooking them and to help and care for those in need and to share our wealth with them. For you see, this story is our warning. So, what's it going to be? Heaven or hell? And for whom? And in this life and the next. The curtain hasn't fallen yet. Let us pray. God, we confess that we don't like parables of judgment. But the truth is, God, that we need to have ears to hear and eyes to see. Thank you for giving us the gift of Scripture. Thank you, God, for giving us the gift of a son who loved us so much that he came and lived among us and was raised from the dead. God, help us to be found, to be good observers of your place in the world and that you are associating with people that we don't want to see. Change us, God, in to the generous people that you've called us to be. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.